Hey y'all, this is Philip from the Redefining Conservation team. Before we get to the show, I've got two quick requests. As we're coming to the end of our first season, we'd love to hear from you. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate our show and drop us a line in the review. Otherwise, feel free to get in touch with us at the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. Welcome to Redefining Conservation, the Sierra Club Maine podcast. Dive into our mission to preserve 30% of Maine's land, water, and forestry by 2030, its impact on Maine, and the innovative strategies behind it. Tune in to stay informed, inspired, and engaged as we redefine conservation. My name is Nylat Bilyeu, and I'm your host for Redefining Conservation. Today, we are discussing land access, land rights, and where the land back movement fits into our current conservation structure. Our guest today is Lakota Sanborn, who we are so honored to have recording in the studio with us. Thank you so much, Lakota, for joining us and being a part of this, this discussion. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Of course. And for the people who are listening and don't know who Lakota is and the work he does for our community. Lakota is a Penobscot artist and a community organizer well known for his work around the intersections between racial justice and environmental justice. Lakota is a land steward at Bomazine Land Trust, a Wabanaki-led land trust in Maine and a youth coordinator at First Light Learning Journey a collaborative of Maine Indigenous tribal communities organizing to relearn history, recenter Indigenous voices, and return land, resources, and power to its communities. At Bomazine Land Trust, Lakota focuses on centering cultural sustainability, food sovereignty, land protection, and connecting the people to the land. At First Light, he aims to involve more young people in land and cultural sustainability conversations and organizing organizing efforts. Lakota is a cherished community leader fighting to liberate and empower his community. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me. Can I ask how was that drive down? I know <laughs> I know we asked you to, you know, take a long take a long hike over here, but yeah, how was the how was the drive? Yeah, it was pretty good. I feel like at this point with the amount of travel that I do, uh anything under like 5 hours just kind of flies by and I thankfully like have podcasts that <laughs> um that help me get me through it. Yeah. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what you were listening to? Yeah, for sure. I was actually listening to um uh, episode, I think it was 155 of a podcast called Citations Needed, and uh, it's really focused on um, the colonial origins of conservation as a movement, as well as its impacts uh, on a global level um, when it comes to indigenous peoples. Mm, that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to listen to that. Um, so with this conversation, we are beginning to break down the 30 by 30 campaign and how it relates to land access in Maine. Can you tell us a bit more about your work with Bomazine Land Trust and First Light Journey? Yeah, sure. So Bomazine Land Trust, as you said, we we formed due to a common connection to an area in western Maine along the Kennebec River, um, more specifically the village site uh, traditionally that existed at Nourage Walk. Um, and we formed as a means to bring together Wabanaki people um, who were descended from the original inhabitants of that village site, who in 1724, um, as a result of a massacre carried out by the English settlers, um, had to flee to other communities. And so we're primarily um, comprised of 
people from Penobscot Nation as well as Odenac, uh, Abenaki First Nation based in Quebec. Um, those folks up there as well as people in our community and people at Passamaquoddy, uh, many of them trace their descent uh, to Nourage Walk. Um, and so a lot of the work that we are orienting on, uh, as you said, is like based on land access and land protection in that area because there is a bit of a vacuum since uh, the people were forced out of that region. Um, and we're also really focused on uh, cultural sustainability and connecting people to the lands in those areas as well as uh, focusing on food sovereignty and uh, fighting for a level of food independence and uh, food security for our communities across across the territory. Thank you for that. And would you say First Light is somewhat kind of doing the community aspects of those things? Yeah, I think uh, so within First Light, it's um, a lot of the work that I do and have, have been uh, working with them on has been, you know, the broader conservation movement. There's about 60 or so land trusts and conservation groups active across the state of Maine um, who have been in the process of like a uh, yeah collaborative learning experience with members, prominent uh, leaders of the Wabanaki communities um, to, as you said, like relearn the history here, to relearn the history of conservation, especially um, more broadly, and um, recentering indigenous perspectives and land tenure within their organizations and within their collaboration. And ultimately, um, I think with the end goal of returning land to the Wabanaki peoples, um, so a lot of that has been having a series of conversations, um, presentations, educational um, events and things of that sort and bringing Wabanaki and non-Wabanaki people in the conservation movement together to uh, build relationships essentially and build build stronger alliances and, and collaborations on projects and things that relate to lands. I really appreciate that breakdown. As an Indigenous land back organizer, how do you feel your work relates to the 30 by 30 campaign? And could you also um, touch on what what does land access look like for your community? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> That's a, I feel like this, this whole thing is uh, almost a little bit loaded in a way. I want to dive more into um, the, the 30 by 30 project as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a giant gap that exists within the work that many of the, um, in many cases, like multi-million dollar uh, conservation groups who are active on, not just like within Maine or within the United States, but on the international levels. And there's really a gap that exists um, when it comes to indigenous land tenure, um, indigenous forms of land management and land access as a whole. Um, and in many cases, within like a global context, uh, indigenous peoples are really fighting and contending with this idea of, of the 30 by 30 conservation um, that's being put forward by many of these large scale NGOs and as well as uh, governments within uh, mo- mainly the global north and really just the level of of I feel like a lack of understanding that people within this this continent have uh, in relation to many of those communities in places like Africa, South America, um, within Asia, and really the the brutality of the realities that they f- are faced with as a result of of uh, this this movement. And when it comes to the Sierra Club and other organizations that are pushing for the thirty by thirty, I think ultimately it's important that we're having these conversations, but again, like there needs to be a dramatic change in what we're doing because globally the 30 by 30 movement or the 50 by 50 movement or whatever you want to call it, like this is leading to drastic 
brutal um, occupation and land takings of indigenous peoples worldwide. Like there are people who are being, uh, that are given, there are, are conservation organizations and forest services that are given shoot, shoot on site ordinances, right? Where they are killing indigenous peoples simply for being in their lands because they could be poachers, right? And so like there, there are many cases, like I, within the Congo, I know that there was a really big, um, investigative report that was done, I think a couple of years back, um, is Robert Flummerfelt, the, uh, Coyuscanega, uh, national park, and just the level of atrocities that were committed against the indigenous peoples there and ongoing issues there, um, with village burnings. And so like, we can say, yeah, 30 by 30 is a great thing. Like carbon offsets. We're just, we're buying up all this land to protect. It's not enough. It's, it's not, not only is it not enough, but it's very disastrous for people as well. And so we need to really be shifting our focus to having a better understanding of what's going on globally, what the root causes of the environmental destruction are, and how we can better have an intersectional approach and, you know, ultimately understand um, the roles that we all play within within climate change um, mitigation. We, we have been in these lands for thousands of years and have been in many cases, like we've been disconnected from the vast majority of our territory and the areas that we do have as communities oftentimes are like, they're kind of far away. Like they're, they're hard to get to. Um, a lot of really important cultural sites, um, if they're not in active conservation, they're private, privately owned. And so like really important areas for things like um, for clamming or food cultivation, um, things like cultural things like uh, sweet grassing and uh, ash harvest are really difficult for our communities. And, you know, oftentimes you'll have like these handshake agreements that exist with either private landholders or um, conservation groups. And then like once that, you know, land transfers hands or you get a new worker involved or um, what have you, like that access basically ends and you have to restart and re um rebegin this uh this relationship building in order to you know get access to those things that we we've always traditionally had access to exactly and i think you you mentioned something that is really important that like as folks that have been traditionally practicing conservation now um what is known as conservation isn't even involving the people that is most um that the environmental movement or even um, climate change as a whole is mostly impacting. And so like if you've for so long for generations have created practices to be able to address the issues that you're dealing with. And then now because of the occupation of your um, land, you're not even a part of that conversation. You can't define what those practices are. And a lot of times you can't even um, interfere. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, how, how are you as an organizer um, amplifying that and are creating ways for us, us as, us is I say us because like a lot of marginalized communities are going through the same thing. So how mm-hmm. do we, I guess, interfere with such a um, with a movement that largely impacts us, but the solutions, the resolutions, and the resources um, we don't have access to and are right. being decided by you said like you said multi million dollar conservation um, mm-hmm. organizations that have their own definition of what conservation even means. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, within like the, at the state level, within the main can't wait um, program and everything, like 
there's a massive gap that exists when it comes to people of marginalized identities, especially indigenous peoples within within those structures and, and like the policy positions that the state of Maine is taking um, to do this work, to, to, you know, preserve or protect 30% of the state mm-hmm. um, and really missing the mark when it comes to things like, um, you know, the impacts of housing insecurity on people from the black and, and refugee and indigenous communities um, and other people of color as well as like food insecurity um, and yeah, land access as a whole. Like those things are really missing in, in their strategic plan, which I think is a huge issue. And yeah, like, like you said, like oftentimes these are the communities um, that are facing the most impacts as a result of climate change um, and experience the results of it like firsthand. And yeah, oftentimes we don't have a seat at the table. We're, we're often overlooked and I think that there's like, there's a root to that. There's a reason why that is. Um, and it really does get to the basis of like private property and land ownership and land, land tenure. And, you know, this, this colonial nation of land management um, that really is what the conservation movement was birthed out of, right? Is this colonial idea of um, people of specific backgrounds, whether that's indigenous or black, are inferior are savage and don't um, don't have the civility to to oversee the lands properly, mm-hmm. and so like within with that being the the kind of backbone to much of the conservation movement, mm-hmm. or like historically, it's like that you can see the effects of that taking place today, where our communities aren't consulted when it comes to yep. to land conservation or when it comes to uh, the different things that we need, whether that's the indigenous communities or other communities across uh, the state. Um, and so I, I think that there's there's a direct you know correlation and like there's there's a reason why that is right yeah yeah and I think for or it's it's even worse when we are also seeing ourselves retract from those extractive methods to now having to rely on indigenous processes right like to be this movement that was so heavily focused on pushing the people that protected the land out now are having to rely on those processes to be able to resource themselves. And I think that's such a slap in the face to, um, to have to like ask or like scream to be in the room. And then now, um, now a lot of the programming or a lot of the processes that are being used, we're asking indigenous, we're asking black and brown communities to think of, um, way to think of new systems to think mm-hmm. of new structures to essentially you know restru- restructure conservation to right. where conservation actually now can be a social movement not only yeah. an environmental movement it can incorporate all of um the other it can incorporate all of the other um social um issues like housing like food justice like um uh land yeah land access and i think we before I think before the reason why it was so heavily set on let's separate conservation from all of the movements or mm-hmm. all of the social movements is because we want to center it around beauty, mm-hmm. not around yeah. like sustainability and actual like um, really g- getting to the like the epicenter of like why why do we need to protect land because we need to utilize it just as much as land needs to be um stewarded and needs to be safe or saved and need to have Mm -hmm. um all of the the resources that it needs 
But when you take the people out of that, then it's just for beauty. It's like yeah. l- literally the, its only purpose is is for that. Or yeah, exactly. Like I, I feel uh, there's a strange like disconnection of, of nature as this thing that exists outside of ourselves, right? Where we like nature or like conserve land is is something that you you go to right like you have to like yeah it's uh, like yeah. not a cultural or like because i like i grew up in a village so for me it's like i couldn't there would literally nowhere to go where you weren't in nature right. like you where like it wasn't your everyday environment and it was almost like leaving there was the break like yeah. leaving that area and the place that we lived and like um cultivated and the place that we learn how to understand our environment like i learned how to um i learned how to forage uh, at like five years old you know what i mean and my mom would send me out to get specific things and for her to even trust me at that age to know which type of fruit because obviously um living in the forest of ethiopia is pretty dangerous for you know plants or um or natural foods. So for her to even trust me, it was almost like she trusted the process and the environment and the culture that like cultivated that for mm-hmm. me to be out, be able to go out and look for certain foods and not, you know, and trust myself enough to pick, pick the right, um, the right foods. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I feel, I feel like, it, yeah, culturally you have that disconnection and then yeah, in our everyday lives, we don't look at, like, the city or the towns that we live in as being, like, a component of the environment, right? It's, like, this thing that exists outside of ourselves, outside of, of our lives, like, the quote-unquote real world that you go to in order to just look at, right? Like, that romantic beauty aspect mm-hmm. and element and, like, how... And I think that really created a disconnect. Like, when mm-hmm. that was, I don't know, like, I don't know when that happened, but when that transition happened, I feel like it created a huge disconnect. And I personally think like a lot of that burden um, went to indigenous and black and brown communities because they're so heavily um, or like culturally used to being in those spaces or or cultivating those spaces. Exactly. And like in terms of the origin point for that, too, it's like you have you have people like John Muir. Right. And uh, other members of like this, this, uh, the beginning of this movement and like especially prominent members of like the transcendentalist movement like henry david thoreau and like this this idea that you know the cities are these dirty hubs full of like poor people and we need to and there's too many immigrants and it's dirty and we need to return to nature and like experience nature and like there's this there's this level of like okay like who are the people that they're talking about like going and enjoying nature, right? It's like who has the ability to up and leave their jobs and like their, you know, their, their home and then like go to nature for weeks at a time to write a book in the main woods. Right. And then, and and it's also the fees, right? Like if if you're going to Arcadia to, Mm -hmm. to, um, camp for the weekend you have to pay for parking, you have to pay for where you're camping. Mm -hmm. And then depending on what that, the, activities you want to do you also have to pay for that too and like if a family is struggling in the city they're not going to like really center another cost to like enjoy themselves as a family and that's but if they had you know they had a huge forest park right in front of them they would have more capacity and access to be able to enjoy that because it's free exactly and it's a um it's a public access whereas Mm -hmm. like even a place like Arcadia, which is a national uh, monument and it's a public place, you still have to pay to yeah. have access. And people, um, 
we don't actually talk about that and how that's also restricting because it's even if it's public you still have the to have the capacity to drive all the way up there mm-hmm. and then also pay those small fees which right. for somebody you know that is struggling that yeah. that can that can be a lot yeah i think i think it's important that you know again it's like understanding the kind of historical legacy of these things and like why those barriers exist today it's like those lands initially were um being protected for people within like a very specific uh racial identity and like a very specific class orientation right it's like these these are affluent white people typically that have the ability to make those journeys to Mm -hmm. to go quote-unquote enjoy nature by like um you know just looking at some mountains or looking looking at some wild animals you know free free from any indigenous peoples (laughs) because we kick them out right or um that's so interesting because I so with Sierra Club we had the opportunity to actually go on a BIPOC environmental civil rights tour, mm-hmm. which um, I really don't think a lot of people talk about um, the environmental aspects of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and the fact that folks were literally asking for land, resources, and um, better food systems. And so when we went, we um, I think we or we had shadowed um, an organizer who is working um, with a community that is, I think the community is called Turkey Creek. Mm -hmm. And so he basically talked about how this community was created by um, freed uh, folks that had experienced enslavement and were free and then um, congregated in this community and basically created this community. And a lot of times, or what was happening back then is when folks were free, they were pushed out to the most undesirable, most, um, especially environment, most polluted aspects of yeah. the community, right? Because they don't, they can't choose where they go. They just get pushed to the places that are undesirable or all half the time have to choose that because of the violence that they're facing. And so the story of Turkey Creek is that the, um, this man basically has been trying to protect um, this community that his great-great-grandfather who was enslaved base- cultivated to where before it was swampland mm-hmm. and then when they had they had cultivated for it to be a beautiful river that has um mm-hmm. wildlife that has like striving wild- wildlife or um and has the capacity now to sustain a community and it was beautiful like everybody was utilizing that area it became a place where people um where like a lot of black and brown families were going there to be in community with other black and brown families. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when they started to strive, when this community started to do well and started to, to, you know, create resources for them where they wouldn't need the state or um, resources from, from the majority folks um, or the, the city basically wouldn't allow them to, um, to register as a new city. Okay. And so yeah. um, companies started building, pollution like started um they started um i can't remember this they started oh they started rezoning the community that's what it was they started rezoning it into industrial zoning allowing for um companies to be able to build plants literally around the the community and and so that just got me to think like one that that tour was amazing it just gave me such a Mm -hmm. such a um, glimpse of history that i just never really think of but it also really um goes back to to 
the important aspects of like black and brown people are still today just fighting for for land access and the mm-hmm. fact that that goes back to when their great grandparents were were freed and were trying to resource themselves to have a place to live and now they're still being restricted from from calling that their home from creating that community when they literally cultivated it they protected it Mm -hmm. and got it to the point where people wanted to you know create business there wanted to engage with it in that in that manner because of before they were pushed there because nobody wanted you know what i mean they didn't want to have access to that place because it was swampland now that it looks beautiful and these people took care of the land right you want you want to commercialize it and and so that just i don't know it, it just really spoke to the fact that like a lot of these movements are intersectional they're interconnected and we have to start seeing them Mm -hmm. as such because you can't now because a lot of times people are looking at you know the issue issues of civil rights or issues um regarding black and brown people getting freedom in this country Mm -hmm. as social justice or or specifically civil rights when literally on the ground they're fighting for land access they're fighting for food justice they're fighting for some form of autonomy um and so i just think it's interesting that that's never really centered in the environmental movement yeah definitely i think i think that that's something that happens often within colonialism is like this idea of compartmentalization and like the separation of different uh elements of life and society right Mm -hmm. where like there is this uh artificialized or synthetic uh disconnection of movements or or of things like the city from the environment's for example, like mm-hmm. this compartmentalized, I think it was like Franz Fanon who was talking a lot about this in Wretched of the Earth, but talking about how it's like this artificial compartmentalization and separation that leads to a lot of like alienation from yep. from the world and mm-hmm. like from each other and from the society at large. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that often, like, again, like there are specific groups of people who are the most impacted by things like pollutants and by um, the devastating impacts of of climate change and in of industry. Right. And like we still today, like within Penobscot territory, we, though we've been in the period of like a, a river cleanup um, of the Penobscot river, that's, that's had amazing impacts and in, in restoration happening there. Uh, it's still severely polluted um, in terms of like the unsafe consumption levels for fish um, that we traditionally relied on for sustenance. Right. And, you know, we're we're still contending with um, environmental pollutants in different areas. And, like, there's conversations around different mines going up and, like, zinc and lead mines um, within the, the greater watersheds. And it's like, why are these things proposed? Like, e- even with, uh, like, the mega dump Juniper Ridge landfill, mm-hmm. right? And, like, the processing of the leachate and the dumping of the leachate directly yep. into the Penobscot River. It's like... Why Why is that happening so near to our community? Why are the mines being proposed so yeah. near to our communities? Whereas, All of them, too. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I mean, like, you had that same thing happen back with Standing Rock, right? Like, yeah. initially, the pipeline was proposed to go closer to, like, uh, a larger... Um, non-native community right and then they rerouted it because the people would not would not stand for it right and that's that the same reason. thing yeah. happened in cancer alley where yeah. formosa like basically got scared or threatened by the white community and yep. then they moved it into actually they didn't even move it they paid folks to be um to buy out their houses yep. so that they wouldn't live in in a place that was polluted anymore yep. but then they didn't pay the black and brown people that lived of course why would you <laughs> and, right yeah because they knew they didn't have you know the legal capacity to fight yep. and it's crazy that a corporation can 
like functionally has that in mind like yeah, yeah i'm gonna go to your because i know you wouldn't have the authority or the resources right. but i can't go here because i know there these people are protected yep. beyond my capacity definitely i i think too like uh another element to what we were just talking about with like compartmentalization and, like the separation mm-hmm. of things is like this idea that somehow like the 30 by 30 plan will like offset the continued pollution and like continued industrialization and like carbon emissions that are just ever increasing, right? Yeah. Um, almost exponentially. And I don't see how those two things, like it's not a solution, right? Like I, as we've seen in like when, when I talk to people in the conservation movement, when, when I've, you know, done these, these events and things and I'm speaking with people, it's like, I don't think that there's, there, there's a level of disillusionment that's starting to come forward where people are like, yeah, we've been doing the same thing and like yet climate change is on it's, like, yeah, yeah. On rise. It's, yeah, exactly. Like things are just getting so much worse globally and like yet we're conserving more land. Like why, why is this happening? It's like because we're not tackling the root cause of the issue, right? We're not, we're not tackling um, capitalist production. We're not tackling um, extractive colonial in- industry models or neoliberalism globally and it's almost like you have this false solution of well if we if we force indigenous peoples out of their land in the congo then you know that means that we can continue to pump carbon into the atmosphere in america yeah. it's like yeah, yeah, how yeah. how there's, is that a solution exactly like there's not that collective the collective work that we all need to because at this point like capitalism is global we're all like all of the services mm-hmm. and the industries that we all or that would be singular to one country are now like working globally. Yeah. And so they're doing the same thing globally. So mm-hmm. if we're, it's, it's hard to have solutions be, you know, one country kind of doing their own thing, another country kind of doing their mm-hmm. own thing where it's not a collective intersectional pursuit of like solutions. And that actually takes us or takes me to <laughs> our next question of like um, the intersection of conservation mm-hmm. and, and social movements yeah. and, um we've talked a lot about what that looks like but as um within this campaign and with our title redefining conservation Mm -hmm. which is really what we're trying to do we're trying to incorporate some of the things that usually don't or aren't um included in the the um in the conversation when it comes to conservation Mm -hmm. and so how do you feel um do you feel like land access is a singular issue or does it intersect with food justice racial justice and the housing crisis oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's a leading question again you definitely uh yeah hit the nail on the head there it's it's all interconnected of course right like when it comes to land access, like we can't separate ourselves out from the environment, right? That mm-hmm. it's something again that you you make a trip or a plan to go to for the weekend and then you come home, right? It's like we all live within the world. We we harvest and cultivate food from the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like wherever that is in the product uh, the production chain, right? And yeah, so things things like food uh, security, food access, um, especially like housing access i think that's a critical component of conservation that's often left out like it again you you don't have the same level of like environmental protection um and conservation ideals when it comes to a place like 
a city or a rural community who is like struggling with things like poverty. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, when we're doing land justice work, we really need to think about like people's role in the environment and in the world, right? And like how to make sure that people's basic needs are met, but also uh, more than that, uh, you know. And within Bamazine Land Trust and the work that we do, um, when it comes to what's been called land back or um, rematriation or land returns, I think that ultimately it really revolves around this idea that like indigenous peoples, because we because we contend with so many issues as a result of a lack of land access and a result of colonialism, like we're facing things like housing insecurity within our own homelands. We're facing things like food insecurity and food related illnesses um, and a lack of land access to be able to, um, you know, practice our culture in spaces that we've been doing so for thousands of years. And so really there's been a movement um, of, land returns that have been happening, um, both within Maine, as well as like, I feel like internationally, this has been occurring. Um, and we're at, we're at a time where lands are also being seized from, from different native nations as well. And so land back really has to do with the land being returned to the tribal nations. Um, and in some instances, like with ours, like non-governmental, um, tribally run community organizations, um, to ensure that, again, like we have ways to meet some of the challenges that are associated with colonialism. Ultimately, I think land back and land uh, returning to tribal nations is a very important part of, you know, combating a lot of the impacts of climate change as a result of colonialism and capitalism. But, you know, ultimately, there needs to be just more collaboration and more relationships too forming between indigenous communities and people who are doing land-based work um, across the board, really. Like whether that's a governmental <laughs> run thing or like the National Park Service or if it's, um, you know, individual groups doing like farming things. I, th I think it makes sense to have a lot more connections and uh, accountability and collaboration uh, to each other within this work. There's been a lot of progress within uh, land returns and within collaborations. I mean, some of the work that um, we've done with First Light Learning Journey and building relationships between these more, I guess what you could call conventional um, conservation organizations with that of indigenous peoples um, within Maine from the Wabanaki communities has been, it's been like night and day, I'd say, in some ways where we're when we have conversations with groups who haven't been a part of that process, it's been difficult um, to kind of explain like, yeah, here's the history of why conservation is problematic. Like when you don't have a barometer for that, I think it's really difficult for people um, to really understand where we're coming from and why it's important to us to have land access or have land return to us. Um, when they see like, no, well, we've been doing this for so many years. Why do we, why do we have to turn land over? Um, I, I think that, you know, there's there's been definitely like direct immediate things too. It's not just like a shifting of the consciousness of conservation movement or like these these ideas are be t being talked about more. Like there have been actual land return projects that have happened um, between these con uh, conservation groups and the Wabanaki commu uh, communities here in here in Maine. You know, there's Elliottsville that was returned to the Penobscot Nation. There was Guizwimanik uh, that was returned to Passamaquoddy. Um, there are a variety of other projects that I'm that I know about um, that relate to land returns happening with the Wabanaki nations, and 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a shift that's happening. And I think that it's just the beginning, really, of what's necessary. That was a great, yeah, that was a great answer. And I think I'll just add that I think um, when we're thinking intersectionally about these things and how they they connect and how land access can easily become... um, uh, affordable housing mm-hmm. or um, there, I mean, there are multiple um, through the research that we've been doing, there are multiple examples of actual um, land trusts that are also affordable housing complex yep. uh, or affordable housing coalitions. And I think if we're not going that route where we're involving our community in the understanding of how land works or mm-hmm. how, um, or how land can also um, trend, become all of these different things right become it can become housing it can become a farm it can become um a community space and so how what does it look like for us to in to be involved hmm. in creating those spaces for ourselves and also redefining like what we need out of those spaces yeah, yeah um, definitely and it, i th- i think too like i, I did want to say that like i think ultimately like the idea behind conservationism and like the idea like i get it like people are like wouldn't it be nicer if this was like you know a protected area that's not being turned into condos or like yeah a a parking lot you know and like i i definitely feel that but i yeah i mean i think ultimately the way that and like i'm speaking as somebody who you know sits on the board of bombazine and you know it's a wabanaki led land trust but i think ultimately like we kind of view land trust as like a temporary in the moment solution to really what we're contending with. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause again, like we're, we're within a colonial society. We're not, I don't think we're like illusioned or bought into the idea that like somehow we're going to stop like industry from just destroying the world and like ecological collapse just mm-hmm. by, you know, getting some acres and having a communal garden. Right. Like there's, there's a lot more structurally and like on a, on a very massive scale that needs to take place. And I think a lot of it is like the repositioning and um, education of, of, you know, of these political processes of, of economic models and like other, other means of land tenure and, and um, being within a landscape. And, you know, one of, one of the things too, like that I want to point out that's different about our land trust is that we, we're a community land trust, right? Like we, we specifically have not been, uh, creating uh, conservational easements on on the land that we that we hold, right? That has been returned to us, and there's a very specific reason for that, right? And like I, I think that that's something that I really wanted to touch on too is that within this conservation movement of like, yeah, we need to conser- conserve this amount of land by this this year. Um, people often don't realize what it means to put land uh, conservation easements on land and how restrictive those things are Mm -hmm. and also how difficult it is to lift a conservation easement. And I think that there's, again, like it comes from, it comes from a decent place mindset wise, I think of like, we want to protect this place from development, from things like mining, from things like, um, yeah, again, like a Walmart going up. However, um, you know, you, you you can't say, yeah, you can't say like in perpetuity, this land can only be used for X. And it's just... Especially to an indigenous community. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. It's like when we're struggling with land access and not able to access things like traditional foods, medicines, um, just going to lands that have always been sacred to us to be like, this land can only be utilized for this forever. 
And like, it's just the yeah. the level of audacity there too. It's like, okay, like with the climate crisis, we're not going to know what the needs are going to be. Like yeah. there's, there's definitely going to be an influx of refugees and like people who need things like housing. There's mm-hmm. going to be a need for more um, agricultural um, space, space yeah. especially because Maine, Maine imports most, like the vast majority of its produce, right? And like, not saying that we need to have like just localized solutions to problems, but really making sure that we have the infrastructure to to make sure that our communities do have things like like food security, right? And so yeah. to be like, well, sorry, this field um, is conserved by, you know, whatever, Who, whatever, yeah, yeah whatever yeah. a million dollar NGO, um, you guys can't farm here. It's like, well, you're not going to know what the future is going to look like in 50 years, right? Like there's there's things in California that are in place in terms of water consumption that are on the books that like they were written during a time when the drought wasn't to the level that it is. Right. And so like people are still using those, those laws and like those protocols while not uh, taking into account like the reality that we exist in, right. Like the material Mm -hmm. conditions that we're Mm -hmm. in. And so I I think that there's, there's a big problem as well within just like conservation as like, this is the solution. It's like there there needs to, yeah, exactly. It's like, there needs to be, um, there needs to be more conversation around alternatives to to land protection and land tenure um, that ensures that people are able to live within the land in what ways make sense, right, for our material conditions. Because, like, the world is not a static place, yeah. right? Like, things don't just remain the way that they are 50, 100 years later, right? Like, we really need to be focused on what people's immediate needs are and how to um, to cultivate... Uh, better relationships with the land in mm-hmm. in ways that are beyond just like don't come here <laughs> don't don't like, cut down a tree <laughs> okay so we've talked about <laughs> all of the um hardship i guess and all of just like the um the lack of awareness and the lack of intersection mm-hmm. but um how how can so how can we um or since we've been talking about the intersection how can the environmental movement or even Sierra Club or this campaign as a whole um begin to start creating intersectional so- solutions yeah yeah for sure i think um ultimately conservation's not going to change overnight right yeah. and Unfortunately, because we're in a we're in a time of of crisis, right? Like it's not something that's on the horizon for us. It's really been on our shores for a very long time in terms of the uh, the climate uh, climate devastation and climate change as a whole. Um, and but I'm aware of that, right? Like we we can't just snap our fingers and <laughs> change conservation overnight. But I think ultimately, and um, something that uh, many within many within the conservation movement um, who are more critical of it have been advocating for is like a shift of resources, especially from these multi-million dollar, sometimes multi-billion dollar companies and NGOs um, or governmental organizations and shifting the resources to ensure that the people who are the most impacted and the people who have a lot more information about like historical land tenure um, are given those resources, right? And so like there needs to be a shift happening and it's not just a money shift, but also a shift of land, um, a, le- a shift of land accessibility, as well as, um, unfortunately, the world that we live in, land ac- uh, land ownership is one of the only ways that, that we're able to do that. Um, but I think ultimately, like the indigenous peoples, the the black uh, descendants of, of Africans, slaves, and 
um, other marginalized groups like really need to be at the table and like those resources need to be put into their hands because again like those are the groups of people who are experiencing the most drastic impacts of climate change and so when it comes to the intersectional approach I, I think it's great to be having like conversations and opening the the education and people feeling good about themselves getting educated about things however like that's not enough and we really need to be taking immediate steps to things like redistributing um, resources to the folks that need it the most, those communities that need it the most. Um, like re-education is great, but if you're not going to do something with that education, then mm -hmm. I think it's really misguided. And so yeah. I think ultimately uh, the state of Maine and the, I'll speak more specifically the state of Maine. I think ultimately that the state of Maine needs to do a lot better of a job of respecting Wabanaki sovereignty and you know, whether that be the conservative Republican Party or the liberal um, party and, you know, the Governor Janet Mills really being adamantly opposed to things like Wabanaki sovereignty and extending us the basic rights that we deserve and are obligated to us within the treaties that we signed with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, Maine needs to do better. And ultimately, many of the things that we're facing are a direct result of Maine's relationship with the Wabanaki communities here, whether that's on an environmental scale or within housing and um, the food access as well. And so I think ultimately, especially within Maine's plan, the, the Maine, Maine can't wait and this 30 by 30 thing, like they really need to be having more conversations with us. I remember speaking with one of the policy analysts. Um, I can't remember her name, but within the plan, like they've had very little, if any, outreach in a variety of the different things that they're trying to do within this plan. And it's critically important that they extend, you know, that courtesy and that they begin to really respect and understand Wabanaki sovereignty and why it's important here. Okay, so thank you. Thank you so much for um, just giving us some of your wisdom and answering some of these um, intense questions. I do want to ask a little bit more about yourself because I think you're an interesting person. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so I know that you're a writer, but I also know that you're an artiste. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit more about your art and what um, what do you specifically do as an yeah, artist? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm a multimedia artist. Um, more recently, when I have the time to do it, because <laughs> I've been very busy lately and uh, in, in the process of renovating a house. Um and, but when I get the chance to do it, I've mostly been focused on doing film work as well as uh, music production and, um, really trying to get back into doing it fairly regularly. Um, I think with the busyness of the schedule and, um, a lot of things that happened over the course of the pandemic, things kind of took a back burner thing, but, um, yeah, working mostly on music and, uh, film production. I work with Sunlight Media Collective as well, uh, mostly doing cinematography Ooh. and, uh, script writing for them. Yeah. That's really cool. Are, yep. Do y'all do, do y'all produce like many projects? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we mainly do documentaries, um, that are specifically about the environmental impacts on, uh, the Wabanaki communities here in Maine and not just environmental impacts, but as well as the, um, the actual policy um, impacts of the state of Maine on, on the Wabanaki communities here. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Um, and yeah. So is there anything else you would like folks to know? Like where can folks find information about you or about the work you're doing? Um, 
Yeah, bombazinelandtrust.org um, if you want to learn more about our organization and the work that we do. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think leaving it off just with saying that I, I think that there are many solutions that, that we need to consider within the this whole concept of the 30 by 30 uh, movement that aren't being talked about and not being addressed. And yeah, we just need to do better about yeah. that. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, hopefully this is one way we can do better Mm -hmm. is to incorporate all of these different um, voices, all of these different experiences and um, amplify them and ensure that the movement is recognizing them and is in, Mm -hmm. um, it is creating space for them. So definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining this conversation with me and just um, giving us some of your wisdom Thank you for being here. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having me so much. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of Redefining Conservation, a podcast from Sierra Club, Maine. You can find every episode and a link to our comment form at tinyurl.com slash scmpodcast. If you liked this week's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is written, edited, and produced by the staff and volunteers of our chapter, including Nyelad Bilil, Matthew Cannon, Nazreen Shek Youssef, Anna Siegel, Philip Matthew, Grace Dang, Minet Weld, and our theme music was composed by Nathan Chromes Davis. Head to sierraclub.org slash Maine to learn more about how you can get involved with environmental activism in your community. Thank you for listening. Thank you.